This podcast is brought to you by Recontract, the leading software to automate your reconditioning process. From vehicles to people to parts, Recontract streamlines every touchpoint in your recon process. Visit recontract.com an to learn more. That's R-E-C-O-N-T-R-A-C dot com slash A-N. Welcome to Daily Drive for Thursday, March 30th, 2023. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News. And I'm Kellen Walker. Today on the show, Ford secures some EV battery minerals. Kia and Polestar are both getting some positive feedback, and it's almost April, so it's about time for the Jeeps to come out. Plus, we'll take a step back to think through a busy week for the UAW. Sean won by fewer than 500 votes, razor thin margin. I think about six or seven percent of total membership support, right? That's it's not a lot. So you can't really argue that he has a mandate. If Ray Curry would have won, couldn't really argue. People were super jazzed about him. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. Ford Motor Company signed an investment agreement with PT Vale Indonesia and China's Zhejiang Huayo Cobalt today to build a $4.5 billion nickel processing plant in Indonesia. The high-pressure acid leaching operation is expected to produce 120,000 tons a year of mixed hydroxide precipitate, which is material extracted from nickel ore that is used in batteries for electric vehicles. Indonesia, which has the biggest nickel reserves in the world, has been trying to develop downstream industries for the metal with ambitions to eventually produce batteries and EVs. Vale and Hayo began construction of the plant in November, and commercial operation is expected to start in 2026. Closer to home, as many dealership groups in the U.S. look to expand through acquisitions, one mass market brand is rising to the top of many buyers' wish lists. Brokers say it's Kia. Once known for its economically priced models with subpar quality and ho-hum styling, the Kia narrative has shifted through improved vehicle quality and dependability. And the launch of nameplates such as the Telluride Large Crossover and the EV6 Electric Compact Crossover. The Korean brand from Hyundai Motor Group has one of the freshest product lineups in the industry and is poised to build out its offerings of electric vehicles in the coming years. Mike Sims, president of buy-sell firm Pinnacle Mergers and Acquisitions in Frisco, Texas, said that not long ago, if a Kia dealership was part of a group, a buyer might have reluctantly agreed to take on the brand. But now, he said, quote, I don't know anybody that would not like to have a Kia dealership. Luxury electric vehicle maker Polestar, which is affiliated with Volvo, is seeing an increase in its leasing business, which it credits to new federal tax rules on EVs. Polestar North America CEO Gregor Hembro said lease volume on the Polestar 2 Fastback picked up this month compared with February. He attributes the gains to a very competitive 36-month offer that includes the $7,500 commercial clean vehicle tax credit, which is now available on EV leases, even for vehicles made outside North America. The Polestar 2 lease now starts at $469 a month, down from $529 in February. Hembro told Automotive News that he's, quote, starting to see indicators that consumers are going back to leasing in the EV segment. Leases account for 60% of Polestar 2 deliveries, up from 40% a year ago. 
It's spring. April is right around the corner. So it must be time for the Easter Jeep Safari and a new array of over-the-top concepts from the off-road brand. The seven concepts will be tested on the off-road terrain of Moab, Utah for the 57th annual gathering of Jeep enthusiasts, which begins April 1st. It's one of the largest off-road gatherings in the world and is hosted by Moab's Red Rock Four-Wheelers Club. The brand uses the event to glean insights from off-roaders and give designers and engineers hands-on experience in the wilderness to help them develop future models. This year's concepts include a Grand Wagoneer Overland with a solar roof that angles up to create a climate-controlled sleeping area, a battery-powered concept Magneto 3.0, and a few 4xe plug-in hybrids, including a retrofitted 1978 Cherokee. Check out all the cool photos at autonews.com. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, Ford signed an investment with an Indonesian company and a Chinese company to build a nickel processing plant. Now, isn't everyone trying to get their minerals from North America to qualify for the U.S. tax breaks? Yeah, that's definitely been uh, been the trend because it's so necessary. And especially with a Chinese company involved, it seems like anything that has this nickel mineral would not be eligible for the U.S. credits. But, you know, Ford is still a global company, so they're probably looking to get these minerals for use in the EVs that they would sell in you know, China or Europe or other non-U.S. markets. You know, it's a, it's a big company and a whole big uh, market out there. So I guess uh, you need, to need minerals for all of them. Interesting. Coming up, the UAW has a new president who is seeking unity ahead of negotiations with the Detroit Three. We'll talk about it next on Daily Drive. Across the Hendrick Automotive Group, each store had a different reconditioning process. They started looking for a solution that would help them standardize their processes, give them actionable information, and ultimately drive efficiency. Knowing they needed to bring together all pieces of their operation to cut cycle times down to their goal of three days, they chose Recontract. Chris Little, Vice President of Variable Operations, explains why having the tools to measure your recon process gives you what you need to manage it more effectively. Everyone knows speed uh, to the front line uh, equates to more turns, which helps the overall company do better in terms of parts service and inventory bias. And so uh, when you can really take the time to measure and manage that uh, and perfect that, uh, you're going to increase your turns, you're going to increase your gross profit, and you're really just going to increase the amount of used cars you can sell uh, because you're getting them out on the front line. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Kellen Walker. The UAW has been through a lot of change in recent years since a corruption scandal put several officers, including two former presidents, in prison. It now has direct elections for leaders, It currently has a federal monitor overseeing operations, and it now has its fifth president in five years. Michael Martinez has been covering all of the activity for us at Automotive News. Now that the bargaining convention is over, he and I sat down to discuss what it all means. Here's our conversation. Michael Martinez, welcome back to Daily Drive. Thanks for having me. What a week on the UAW beat. We have a new president, a bargaining convention, a lot of fiery rhetoric. Let's start with the election. Reformer Sean Fain won a close runoff. What are the takeaways from that process and the race between Fain and and Ray Curry? Well, I'd say the takeaways 
are that the union wanted to move in a new direction, or at least the very few members that actually bothered to show up and turn in their ballot. Sean won by fewer than 500 votes, razor thin margin, I think about six or 7% of total membership support, right? That's, it's not a lot. So you can't really argue that he has a mandate. If Ray Curry would have won, couldn't really argue people were super jazzed about him either. So it's kind of tough to make a decision based off this first election. You know, to be fair, it was the first of its kind for the union. They're still ironing out some kinks. So maybe things will go a little bit more smoothly next time around. But this was uh, this was kind of tough. However, just the fact that basically everybody that was on Sean Fain's reform slate also won their election really does show you that the union wants to sort of finally move beyond this whole era of corruption. Obviously, Ray Curry wasn't part of that. He was never charged with anything. He's the one who instituted a bunch of reforms that helped get the union on the right track again anyway. But just that whole Ruther administrative caucus, that whole establishment class in Solidarity House, everybody, the, the rank and file really kind of wanted them to go, wanted new blood that would better reflect the will of the membership. So they lost. You mentioned the the process and the low turnout. Was there any talk at the convention about how to improve that? Or is the, you know, are the new leaders, the new board members, are, are they talking about what any, you know, practical, concrete things to improve the process? Still early days. Obviously, you got another four years to go until the <laughs> next one. A couple of the reformers who won sort of pinned it on the Curry team saying, well, they didn't want people to vote. So they were almost suppressing the vote. Oddly enough, Ray Curry's team argued that there was voter disenfranchisement when it became clear that he was going to lose. So they're saying, hey, it wasn't us. There were just, you know, the monitor didn't run the election well. So there's some back and forth on that. Uh, the reformers, though, did say they need to get the membership more engaged, uh, more in the loop on things. And when you think about it, a lot of these guys are coming from grassroots organizing efforts in reform caucuses, right? So they're used to knocking on doors, getting talking to members at the plants, at the locals. So, you know, if they could take some of those learnings to the international, maybe you will see more of a push to get people to vote next time. It sounds like there are still some hard feelings between the old guard and the so-called reformers. It's weird to me that it's the Ruther administration caucus because, of course, Ruther was such a, a hero and an icon, but the, the name lasted with the administration caucus. But it seems like there's still quite a rift between the two. Like you said, there's finger pointing about how the election ran, the late disputes. Where does that stand? Well, I think there's always been you know, some different fractures of relationships within the union. But what's interesting to me is that this UAWD, Unite All Workers for Democracy Reform Caucus, Members United, that was the slate that Sean Fain ran on. It was backed by UAWD. It's sort of emerged as the number two, as the anti-establishment. You know, it's, it's they've sort of risen from amongst the, the little divisions within the union. You go back years at, at every convention, there's always anti-establishment folks that are complaining but it seems like finally UAWD is the one that's organized itself the most to rise to be a competitive number two and now a majority of the International Executive Board. I'm not sure that's ever 
really going to change at the convention this week. They did talk a lot about unifying behind the new leadership to get everybody ready for bargaining. But, you know, there are different ideologies, right? UAWD folks view the establishment as, you know, sort of cozy with the companies at fault. You know, the reason why the union has negotiated what they call concessionary contracts since the Great Recession and the establishment sees them as maybe, you know, way too militant, too willing to rock the boat. And there's some friction there. But now it'll be interesting to see how they do come together if they're able to. And you said like when when Ray Curry's name would be invoked at the convention, big applause for him, even though the rank and file members who voted mostly voted against you know him and, and his colleagues. Yeah. Although one thing to point out at this convention, it's not necessarily every UAW member is showing up. These are delegates that are elected, and a lot of these delegates are sympathetic to the establishment. So you do have a lot of Curry supporters that were in that room, right? Maybe it's not reflective of the entire membership, although we really don't know, again, because (laughs) only 141,000 people bothered to vote, and the union has about a million folks that could have voted. So another unity challenge, you know, was this interesting dynamic with Unifor, the Canadian Union, Uh, their new president, Lana Payne, came and spoke, you know, and again, trying to project unity. But it seems like it's going to be hard to pull that off and and keep it together through the course of these talks when they're competing with each other for three companies' investment dollars. Yeah, I mean, the pie is only so big, right? It's not like... These companies have unlimited products and unlimited investments that they'll be willing to make at plants in North America. And it's been interesting when you've had that sort of staggered pattern with UAW and then Unifor going maybe the next year or or whatever the the cadence has been. Now, at the same time, they're all going to be fighting for the same stuff. I asked Sean Fain about that. He met with media during the convention and he said that he feels there's enough product to go around. And he feels that the union needs to broaden its thinking and not say we're UAW in the U.S., they're Unifor in Canada, and even unions in Mexico. He thinks the labor movement as a whole needs to take a step back and coordinate to go up against the enemy that he describes as these greedy corporations. A lot of fiery rhetoric. So, and, and that was one of the things, uh, the if anything, they are the leaders seemed definitely unified in their sort of their hostility and the the heat of their rhetoric toward the automakers, which isn't necessarily unusual and probably shouldn't be too surprising after a corruption scandal that apparently had its roots or at least some of its roots on the management side. But still the the tone stood out to you, didn't it? It did. It seemed to be a step up or two steps up even from what we typically hear at these conventions. Remember, these are more so rallies to fire up the membership and get them ready and get them united. So presidents, every go around, will have their rah-rah speech and talk really, really tough. But this did seem different. It did really evoke a lot of war-like themes. One of the VPs talked about balling up your fist and punching the company in the face. Sean Fain said these companies are the only one and only true enemy that they have to deal with. So it'll be interesting to see what the result of this tough talk is, because you have to realize a lot of these folks that are now on the board, two of the three VPs are brand new, 
who will be dealing with the companies Sean Fain's new at this level. He has been part of bargaining teams in the past, but never, you know, he's never been in the small room that you go to at the very end uh, to cut a deal with a Jim Farley or a Mary Barra. So that inexperience maybe could be leading to some of this tough talk. We'll see if it actually translates into some wins this fall, but it definitely sounds like there's a new tone and it goes back to the election itself, right? If you think about the accountability that these guys will be placed under before, if leadership failed to get everything that the membership wanted, well, you know, they were still pretty safe in assuming that they'd be reelected if they wanted to be right. Because there was just token opposition before the administrative caucus would sail to victory. But now, you know, you have a direct election, you have a mechanism in place to boot these guys out of office if they fail. So, and there's more competition, right? Other factions beyond UAWD or the Ruther caucus could step up, could challenge. And I think that competition and that accountability is going to lead them to push harder maybe than they would have otherwise. Yeah. Although I feel like, you know, politically that kind of rhetoric, making those promises, setting that tone can really backfire. You know, maybe people just will believe that they're going to get everything they ever wanted, uh, which seems uh, unlikely. I mean, it never is because it's a negotiation. And, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, it would be interesting to see how it how it plays out, how it plays out after it's all said and done, whenever that is. But it does seem like the the leaders are really kind of backed in their tough stand, you know, by the rising pro-union sentiment really throughout America, by better, you know, opinions of unions by regular Americans since the 60s. 100%. One of the new regional directors spoke about a fire burning in the labor, labor movement in the United States right now. And you look at some of the contracts that have been signed at other UAW represented companies. We've, I think we've talked about it on this podcast even before. John Deere and Case New Holland, they both went on strike. They both rejected the first contracts they received and they got significantly better deals. CNH was on strike for nine months and they got way better deals. They got COLA back. They got north of 20% raises, I believe. They got plant closing moratorium. They got a lot of healthcare gains as well. So you can better believe that the UAW in the Ford GM and Stellantis departments want to use that as a template for their bargaining too. They think they can really push the companies this go around. But the companies are really wary of unions demands. I mean, they've had nice profits during the pandemic, but they're facing huge investments in EVs, uh, the R&D to bring the cost down. Nobody's making money on EVs yet. Uh, you know, they are facing a incredible pressure. And a lot of them can remember the bankruptcies of GM and Chrysler, which were largely powered by, you know, contracts, UAW contracts that were, you know, written decades and decades earlier. It really could be a tough showdown from both sides. Yeah. I mean, I think it could be argued that the union's in a strong position right now, but that by no means guarantees they're going to get anything or all of what they want this fall, right? I think the companies are really, to your point, not only the EV investments, but looking at the economy as a whole, the chance of a recession this year even or moving forward is relatively high. Ford and GM specifically have signaled they're really trying to cut costs this year. That could be just 
you know, part of the back and forth of a contract year, but they're trying, both trying to cut billions of dollars off their payroll. They're shedding jobs. So it's going to be tough. I, I think the union leaders for all the rhetoric, for all the tough talk are going to run into a brick wall in some instances with these companies pushing back. And the only thing is though, I think they're still new enough and maybe not as institutionalized by the process as they have others have been before that they're fine going on strike. They're fine walking out for an extended period of time and really taking some big gambles to get what they want. Yeah. Big strike fund and, uh, and raises to the strike pay. So, uh, looks like, I mean, they have been gearing up for war, whether, uh, whether they were saying the rhetoric or not going to be some, some wild negotiations, I think on both sides of the border, six deals that need to get done and they need to get reached and then ratified. And we know that's, uh, that's a whole other challenge. Uh, it's going to be quite a year and I'm glad you're out there, uh, keeping an eye on it. It's Michael Martinez, automotive news reporter covering the UAW and Ford. Thanks again for joining me, Mike. Thanks for having me. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Kellen Walker. Thanks to Jack Walsworth, Irvash Kakaria, and Vince Bond Jr. for their help on today's podcast. You can get the latest news on electric vehicles, retail trends, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.